Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a product of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Stable Forecasts of Moderate Growth and Inflation, our 2019 Long-Term Capital Market Assumption Macroeconomic Outlook, and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, Global Market Strategist at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. With me today are Michael Hood and Ben Mandel, both global strategists for our multi-asset solutions group. Today's episode is the first in a series about J.P. Morgan Asset Management's annual long-term capital market assumptions, or LTCMAs. The LTCMAs are our long-term forecasts encompassing 50-plus asset and strategy classes that we've released annually for 23 years in 13 base currencies. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Obviously, growth projections are a critical input whenever you're thinking about where capital markets are headed over extended periods of time. So why don't we dive right in with a conversation around growth, and let's start with developed markets. So right now, we have a developed market forecast and the long-term capital market assumptions of about 1.5% over the next 10 to 15 years. That's below historical averages, and obviously, those demographic drags really factoring into those numbers. Let's start by talking a little bit about this forecast and kind of what the drivers are, what the risks are, and how you see things playing out over the next decade or so. When we're making these long-term economic growth forecasts, we're really abstracting away from current cyclical fluctuations. And what we're trying to focus on are the potential growth drivers over the long term, what's driving and what's shaping how the productive capacity of economies are evolving over the long term. And really what we're doing is a kind of a growth accounting framework where we're assuming that what you get out of economies is related to what you put into economies. And what you're putting into economies is basically the labor force, capital investments, or business spending on CapEx, and then technological change. And then we can break down each of those forces into subgroups as well. And as you say, when we go through this exercise, we come out with a view that growth across the developed world is likely to be weaker in the future than it generally has been, let's say, in the post-war era, the last several decades. And the major driver of that is demographics. It's really slower growth of the labor force relative to what was achieved in the past, which owes to slower growth of populations as well as the aging of the existing labor force. Perhaps one thing that's relevant here is the tie-in between the growth projections and the overall return assumptions that come out of the LTCMA process, not just our own predilection as people who study the economy, but actually it is true that these are the backbone of the return assumptions. As we look back historically, the idea that returns forward-looking are lower than they have been in the past in part reflects the fact that growth expectations have come down. And so if we did this exercise 10 years ago, we would look at a global 60-40 portfolio and say, well, that's something that might return 8% over the next 10 to 15 years. Now it looks more like something in the fives. And you can account for a lot of that downgrade with the growth forecast and demographics in particular. Something that has been stuck into my mind over the past couple of years is just in the U.S., right? 10,000 people, about 10,000 people turn 65 every single day, which I think is really representative of that aging demographic that we're discussing here today. But on the other hand, you have a whole part of the world in the emerging markets where demographics aren't necessarily as much of an issue. So while in the developed world, we're clearly dealing with some structural headwinds to growth and there's a direct impact there, 
on capital market returns, emerging markets seem to be a little bit different from where we sit. So, Michael, could you touch on the views on EM as we think about what lies in store for them going forward? It's true that we forecast significantly faster growth in EM than in developed economies over the next 10 to 15 years. That's already been the case over the last 10 or 15 years. And so essentially what we're projecting is a continuation of that outperformance. The major driver of that gap is really about convergence. So when we think about economies like the U.S., Europe, Japan, we basically assume that all of those places are operating at a global technology frontier. What happens in the U.S. happens pretty much at the same time in Europe and Japan and so on. The emerging economies are operating away from that technological frontier. And so there's room for catch-up. They're poorer today. And so a lot of the story about that continued outperformance in growth terms is about convergence. The demographic story in EM is actually somewhat mixed. So it's true that in places like a Turkey or a South Africa, you've still got pretty fast population growth. But places like China, Korea, Taiwan, which are pretty dominant in the EM universe, at least at the index level, are very similar to places like the U.S. and Japan demographically. So again, it's really much more about adoption of technology, business working practices, and things like that, where you're talking about closing that gap in terms of the income levels between EM and DM over time. Great. And maybe just if we can go one level deeper and think a little bit, you know, emerging markets is a very nebulous term, and there's a lot beneath the surface there. Can you talk a little bit about what the team's views are on the outlook for Asia versus Latin America going forward? The difference is really that in Asia, you're talking about manufacturing economies where growth is going to be driven primarily by that process of technological change. In places like LATAM, you're talking about commodity-oriented economies, where you're really talking about much more things like, again, more favorable demographics, as well as the adoption of better business working practices and so on. And crucially, a difference between these two groups of economies is in growth of human capital. So that's, again, one of the major drivers of long-term growth is improvement in educational attainment, and so on. If you look at places like a Taiwan or a Korea, you've got schooling years that are pretty similar to places like the U.S. In other parts of the world, in a Turkey or a South Africa or a Brazil, you're still coming up that educational curve, and that's a key driver of those economies' likely outperformance over time. So obviously the idea of the importance of education, having the right tools available. These are some of the bigger picture drivers, I think, for LATAM and Asia, respectively. But clearly, we're in a world that is fraught with geopolitical risk, one of the biggest risks being around what's going on with China. So, Ben, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the projection for Chinese growth. It's unchanged at 5% from last year. Are you worried about the potential for the current trade tensions and debates over sharing of technology? Do you rail that forecast? Or do you think that that That's going to be more of a cyclical component that perhaps has an impact in the short term, but doesn't necessarily affect those longer term views. I think that's an important risk to the downside for sure, to an area of strength in our economic outlook. I think I'd mentioned at the outset that I don't think China is disproportionately responsible for the fact that EM is a high growth part of the world. So we look at the China growth rate of 5%, lower than its current growth rate of 6% lower than its historical growth rate, which is closer to 10%. So I don't think, just as a caveat here, that we're overly reliant on China as an engine of growth. I think we see the prospect of that convergence dynamic that Michael was talking about as coming under some threat by the fact that the environment geopolitically is less favorable than it has been for some time. 
when we think about those convergence dynamics, whether it be in terms of convergence, the technological frontier, in terms of capital deepening, even educational attainment to some extent, it's not unreasonable to think about those as a function of trade and goods and services, capital market liberalization, just general globalization, large. And to think that we're in a world where that globalization process might actually be slowing down and even taking a few steps backwards is indeed a risk to those convergence dynamics. I'd mentioned that in the near term, we're fairly optimistic that you get some resolution, some negotiated solution to the U.S.-China trade tensions, but that resolution, if it is to happen in the next year or so, is expected to be narrow in scope. So thinking about something very narrowly focused on the current configuration of tariffs and China-U.S. trade, we don't expect that to resolve the larger, broader strategic rivalry between the U.S. and China, and hence you'd expect these issues to bubble up periodically as we go forward. If history is any guide, having an emerging superpower and an incumbent superpower is oftentimes a challenging environment, particularly when they both have the economic wherewithal that the U.S. and China both do possess. So coming back to what's happening here in the United States, I think about all the times that we get into a rideshare or, you know, somebody has multiple roles and the gig economy has garnered a lot of interest recently and actually been in the news recently as some professors who originally had an estimate as to the role that the gig economy played had perhaps overestimated the impact of this. But how do you guys think about the gig economy in the context of the more traditional labor force and therefore economic growth? And what was the conversation around this issue during the LTCMA process? Well, to take the question specifically, as you said, current research suggests that the gig economy is actually not that big. It's not sizable enough to really move the needle in terms of thinking about what's happening to the labor force as a whole. There are certainly high-profile examples of it, rideshare being the most obvious one, although one of the things that's happened there is that people who used to drive in traditional businesses (laughs) are now driving in non-traditional businesses, and so that's more of a shift than anything else. Thinking a little bit more generally about the question, When we're faced with an issue like the gig economy or what's happening with technological change or what's happening with tax policy, for example, the framework that we've got for making these assumptions where we're drilling down into those drivers of growth over the long term and thinking about what are the inputs into the economy, that's really helpful for analyzing these types of questions because if you make an assertion let's say the gig economy is going to reshape everything, then in order to change the growth numbers, you've got to tell us where that shows through. What is the dial that you're turning in terms of the underlying drivers? If you think about flexible working arrangements, you might think about labor supply. So maybe they're pulling people who wouldn't have been working otherwise into the labor force. Or you might think about hours worked. So you might think about people who had a job working some more hours doing something else. And so those are two areas where you might see some upside to the forecasts over the long term. But I think if you think about what is the magnitude that you're talking about here, what's the percentage growth that you're going to see in the labor force or in hours, it's probably not going to be enough to change the forecasts very specifically. I think another area where we would see more genuine upside risk to the projections over the long term is technological change. We've been in something of a fallow period recently for technological change as it gets embodied in the business working capital stock, 
actually what's happening out there in terms of the way the businesses are operating. feels like there's a lot actually happening in terms of genuine technological progress. And so one might expect that over the next 10 or 15 years, there's some possibility that a lot of that starts to flow through into the way that businesses are actually investing and working. And that could represent some genuine upside risk to our current projections. And, you know, thinking about technology and the relationship between technology and productivity and maybe taking that a step further and thinking about the relationship between productivity and the labor market and wage growth, right, wage growth absent productivity historically generates bad inflation that makes people nervous and uncomfortable and incites the Federal Reserve to become a bit more hawkish than they might otherwise be. Maybe we'll wrap up, Ben, by talking a little bit about the long-term inflation forecasts. They have shifted around a little bit more than the growth projections, and I remember some of these figures were hotly debated because they did come in at levels where people might say, well, this is what the central bank is targeting, so how are you really going to say that that's your inflation forecast? So can you kind of debunk these issues for us and tell us about the thought process that went into those assumptions? Sure. I'm not sure if it's good inflation or bad inflation, but we expect lower inflation on a forward-looking basis relative to what we experienced in the past. To be concrete, as you mentioned, there's a hotly debated topic this year, bringing down our U.S. CPI forecast from 225, which you think about as consistent with the Fed's mandate. So they look at PCE at 2, but that's more or less CPI 225. We brought that down to 2%. In other words, saying that on average over the next 10 to 15 years, we expect the prevailing level of inflation to be lower than the Fed's target. That was particularly controversial because of timing. So just as the Fed reaches its objective, essentially, right now, after many years trying very hard to do so, it seems like an odd time to be downgrading. But actually, that's exactly it. As we look at the other side of the hill here, and we look at the Fed's and policymakers' willingness to indulge an overshoot of inflation in the future, as we think about being late in the cycle and where we might end up in the next downturn, all those things point to somewhat lower profile for inflation. Policymakers don't expect an overshoot of inflation to be anywhere near commensurate with the undershoot that we saw over the last decade. And in all likelihood, when we do go into the next downturn, the interest rate that policymakers target will be back at the zero lower bound, and they'll have to resort to extraordinary policies again, which are less effective at pushing inflation in the direction they want to push it. All of that suggests a certain asymmetry in our forecast around our expectations for what is normal. In other words, we'd expect growth, inflation, and levels of policy rates to be slightly lower on average than normal levels that we think about as prevailing in the long term or in equilibrium. And that's a common theme throughout the entire LTCMA process. We've covered a lot of ground today. Maybe I'll just open it up with kind of a free question to close things out. What do you guys find most interesting in this year's LTCMAs? What do you think clients, you know, if they're flipping through that 100-page-plus document, what would you encourage them to really focus in on? And Ben, maybe we'll start with you. Sure, and not to harp on it, but again, I think economics is an important contribution here. And thematically, it's an important source of stability in our return assumptions. So I mentioned that as part of the downgrade or a lot of the downgrade of our asset market return assumptions can be attributed to lower growth expectations. Well, this year, our headline number for global GDP is the same as it was last year. Within developed markets, across G4, in fact, it's the same as it was last year. And hence, I think you're seeing a little bit of stability here and some fodder for an argument that we're not going to be going 
and downgrading our return assumptions forever. Great. Michael? I think the split between emerging and developed growth is a fascinating topic to think about over the long term. Certainly, there's an anchor there in the existing projections that suggests that if you want growth in the portfolio, emerging markets have to be a significant component of that. Mm -hmm. And so really tracking what happens with things like the global trade system will be crucial over the course of the next couple of years in determining whether or not that continued EM convergence and therefore growth outperformance is going to be allowed to continue or not. Awesome. Well, certainly a lot for us to chew on, and maybe I'll have you guys back in 10 or 15 years, and we'll see how things shook out relative to reality. But thank you again for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on January 14th, 2019. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II, MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs as non-independent research have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. This content is a general communication being provided for informational purposes only, It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given, and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results, J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. 
Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our company's privacy policy. For further information regarding our regional privacy policies, please refer to the EMEA Privacy Policy. For locational Asia-Pacific privacy policies, please click on the respective links. Hong Kong Privacy Policy, Australia Privacy Policy, Taiwan Privacy Policy, Japan Privacy Policy, and Singapore Privacy Policy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Real Assets, Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197601586K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Real Assets, Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201120355E, in Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan Limited, in Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type II Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2019. J.P. Morgan, Chasen Company. All rights reserved.